Welcome to the world of unsexy. From scrap metal to timber, estate planning to freight pooling, this show is a meandering exploration of just how sexy unsexy industries can be. I'm your host, Elaine Zelby, investor at SignalFire and eternally curious human being. In this podcast, we'll peel back the layers of niche and esoteric markets, understanding the history and looking at the future through the eyes of the pioneering entrepreneurs willing to bring technology and exponential improvements to these often overlooked spaces. Join me on a fascinating journey into the unsexy. Hi, everyone. My guest today is John McElhorn, co-founder and CEO of CropSafe, bringing affordable, reliable, and accessible crop analytics and prediction models to farmers across the world. Welcome to the podcast, John. Appreciate you having me. Thanks a lot. Well, I'm curious, did you grow up on a farm? Yeah, in the absolute middle of nowhere in, in Ireland, I, I grew up on a, a small farm. Um, same as my co-founder as well. We both went to school together, lived on small farms about 10 minutes from each other. Um, and yeah, it was an interesting childhood, I'd say. What kind of things did your family grow? Uh, we were pretty small, so it was mainly just grass for, for, our, for the cattle. And then Michal, who's my co-founder, he had a, a larger farm, so like barley and wheat. Um, and he also managed a, a cattle farm too. And as a kid, what kind of roles did you have on the farm? I'm sure your parents put you to work. <laughs> no, I was just kind of running around doing like basic things and checking up on how things are doing. And yeah, just kind of run around tasks. Uh, I, I guess that's always, there's always something to do on the farm, um, no, no matter what time, even if it's like 3 or 4 a.m., yeah, there's something to do. I bet. When you were growing up, did you ever think that you would build any technology for that sector? Thinking about it, um, I never really thought too in-depth about it. Like, I was always interested in building um, stuff with my computer since I got a computer. I think it was when I first got my first computer, I think I was eight or nine years old, um, and we didn't have any internet at the house. Um, so I was figuring out what could I build with this computer that has no internet. So I was building little little um, little apps and games for the computer that would entertain myself. Um, and I, I'd, I'd been doing that for a while until I, I built CropSafe when I was like like 17. Um, but yeah, it was never really a thought that I'd build something like I could actually use, but um, that's how CropSafe actually started. To start it as a small project, like maybe we and our, our neighbors could use. And at 17, you know, most people are not thinking about starting a company, let alone something in the agriculture or ag tech space. So what made you decide that to turn that project into a real company? I think, yeah, people just wanted to pay for it. Uh, so I figured, yeah, I'm not <laughs> going to turn that down. Um, but yeah, it just started as a project. Like I thought it would be fun. And then people outside of Ireland wanted to pay for it, which I thought was really cool because every web app and mobile app that I had built previously like it was mainly just my friends using it and maybe a few international users but CropSafe was the first time it we kind of saw like a good bit of traction that we could see this going a bit further than just our hometown of a few hundred people. And what were the pain points or problems in the agriculture space that you noticed before that created CropSafe? Yeah like one of the main reasons we built CropSafe the first reason um was because we were seeing all this really, really interesting technology that was super valuable being rolled out to farmers that used satellite imagery and weather station data and all this really, really um, 
fancy new data that was just kind of rolled out in the past few weeks. Um, but we were seeing that these new pieces of software were basically data science tools. And when you try to roll that out to farmers that have never seen a satellite imagery image in their life, or they haven't seen Excel sheets of hundreds of numbers in their life before, um, we never really understood the reason why we were giving all the farmers all this data. So we wanted to build a platform that would basically interpret um, satellite imagery and the satellite data and the weather station data in the background instead of having to train a farmer how to interpret this themselves. Because like, like I said earlier, that like you have a million jobs to do on the farm and learn how to interpret all this data shouldn't be another one. And um, so Croft, with CropSafe, we just wanted to build some simplified version of a, a data interpreter for, for farmers. Interesting. I had learned years ago about Farmers Business Network, and that was the first time I realized how data-driven farming actually was. This is more in the United States, but it was pretty crazy how much data they're collecting and using to figure out what to plant, when to plant, how to water, things like that. But I can't imagine it's quite overwhelming, especially when you add on things like satellite imagery and new weather data. How are you getting access to those data sets? Yeah, so it depends what partner we're working with. Um, so like we work with NASA and the European Space Agency, and they just have open programs that allow developers to request access. You just tell them what you're using it for, and they're like, okay, sure, we'll give you the data. Um, so yeah, it's just really a lot of exploration um, and figuring out what works and what doesn't work. So to get access to the data is, is less so like creating an application and more so just understanding what data you actually need. Because there's hundreds or even thousands of satellites um, like 250 kilometers above our heads um, uh, in space, but it's just finding that maybe 10 or 15 of those 10,000 satellites that are actually useful to you. Um, so yeah, it's not too difficult to get access, but uh, it's a bit more difficult figuring out which ones are, are useful. And how do you make sense and make use of that data? Like what can a satellite image actually tell me about my farm? Yeah, so um, like to break it down of how we use our, the satellite imagery and satellite data um, is there's basically two different parts. So there's the satellite imagery, which is similar to what you see on the satellite view if you're using Google Maps or Apple Maps. And then there's satellite data, which can be split down into things like weather data that's just collected by satellites. Um, so from the satellite imagery, um, once we photograph the, uh, the farm, we can start to break down that photo into layers um, and based off how strong the near-infrared layer of that image is, we can start to say, okay, um, the south corner of your field is reflecting a bit highly from this image. So it's likely that there's low growth in the south corner of your field, or if there's a different reflectance um, in the north corner, we can say, oh, there's um, an irrigation problem probably. Uh, so yeah, it's just about breaking things down into layers and small pieces, and then you can start to um, kind of indicate trends a bit better. When you find insights, such as the example you gave where, oh, this, you know, this corner might need more irrigation or having an irrigation problem, are you able to catch it in time so that the farmers can actually take action and make that crop usable? Or is it more for the next season? So our approach is catching on time that a farmer can actually make some sort of action on it. Previ well, actually, so it wasn't previously possible just using satellite imagery because you can only get satellite imagery once every day or two, depending on what the weather is in the clouds. Um, but what we, the approach we're taking instead 
is we're combining the satellite imagery with weather station data and filling in those gaps to be able to make predictions that give farmers enough time to make action on whatever is happening in their field before it's too late. And previously with satellite imagery, a lot of the time it was too late. By the time we got the photo, we would see that there's blight in the field and there's not really an awful lot you can do. But using a combination of weather station data, uh, we find that certain conditions um, are more likely to produce blight in a certain field. So if humidity is above like the certain level and the field temperatures above the certain level and there's a certain amount of rainfall over a week, we can start to say, okay, there's a 90% probability that blight might start appearing in field number 14. So we're going to start to photograph this field using the satellites more frequently because we think there's going to be more high chance of blight. And then we can be able to basically predict it before it happens. Interesting. Do you need access to the farmer's information, their own data to combine with some of the external data sources as well? Meaning what they planted, when they planted, any sensors they're using. Are you able to get access to that data too? So we don't need it to get the farmer set up with CropSafe and for them to get insights. However, it is optional for them if they have weather stations or soil sensors within their fields. We have integrations that farmers can pretty much connect them straight up um, and it allows them to create more alerts uh, on their farm and get more more accurate insights. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, that's something that's a pretty new feature, um, but we find it's, it's quite popular right now. Yeah, I would imagine. What is the typical stack tech stack look like before CropSafe that a farm and both on the software side as well as any hardware they might be using in the fields? Yeah, so we find like it's really it's really funny because every every farmer is slightly slightly different but the same no matter where they are in the world. Um, so it's usually about 15 different programs they have. When I walk first walk into their their mini office, they have a Google Chrome tab with 15 different pieces of software open. And like 20 sheets, Excel sheets of just numbers and numbers and numbers. No matter where I go, like even if it's a farm in France with a farm uh, somewhere in Northern California, it's, it, it looks the same everywhere in the world. Um, and and that's, that was another reason um, we started CropSafe is we didn't believe in the fact the farmers had to manage 15 software pieces and pay set 15 different services. Because like obviously a farmer doesn't have a lot of time and if we could bring all this data into one place, not only does it have the beneficial benefit of farmers only having to deal with one system, it has the benefit of all the data flowing into one place. Uh, the way things are done right now is all this data is basically flowing into these 15 different platforms and it's getting segmented across the world and it, it's not as useful as it could be. But if you flow all this data into one place, um, you can start to make more accurate insights on on the farm and start to pinpoint their key bottlenecks, their bottlenecks within finance and or growing or production, um, instead of letting this data go off and, and never be used again. Are there certain problems that you're finding you're able to pick up on more more often than others? Um, certain problems within the within the the farm. Sorry. Yeah, meaning, you know, you're getting access to all this data and trying to make sense of it, combine it to provide insights and to also help them optimize yield and, you know, make the best out of their farm. Are there certain things that you're able to see consistently that CropSafe is able to help the farms with? Yeah, the most, most, most likely all the time, it's pretty much production issues. Uh, so things like um, wrong, not wrong, it, but less optimized irrigation within the farm or 
um, certain paths they're driving across with their tractor. Um, but another thing that we've started to notice as well that wasn't initially kind of a plan when we started CropSafe is we're able to start to see key financial bottlenecks on the farm. Um, so say, for example, a farm's using three combines this year. With the data we have after they've um, harvested or before they've harvested even, um, we can be able to say, hey, if you lease an additional combine next year, you'll be able to produce so-and-so extra yield. So something we want to do down the line with CropSafe is be able to pre-approve that financing because we'll know beforehand, beforehand a farm might need this extra combine. So we want to pre-approve that financing for that combine and say, hey, financing's here, just click OK. You'll have your combine by tomorrow and you, you'll be able to produce 20,000, 30,000 uh, in additional yield over this harvest period. So that's something that we hadn't we had a clue about when we started CropSafe, but it's something that's kind of come down the line as we've started to explore more of the data. Interesting. And when you start getting into the financing side, are you also helping them figure out what the right budget is based off of yield? Are you able to do some prediction around that? I think it's possible. It's nothing, it's not something that we've really spent an awful lot of time on because it's something that we've only recently started looking into, but I think it's it's quite possible to pretty much automate the entire budget and financial records of a farm. Um, and the farmer's only job should really be managing operations and making sure everything runs on time, making sure everybody um, uh, gets to work and, and does their job and all the finance um, and yield management should be done autom automated, uh, basically. Makes sense. If you could get access to additional data sources, whether it's you know feasible today or not, what would be your ideal? Oh, <laughs> I could make a huge list of this. Okay, this is, I know this is never possible, but um, I think it's coming down the line, but the US government has a lot of really interesting projects, I think, um, within their military um, that are basically the commercial um, markets of satellite imagery. Um, times 10 in terms of the technology. And um, so uh, taking, for example, uh, a lot of the imagery we use is about a 30 centimeter resolution, which means our pictures are made of these pixels and um, a license plate on this pixel will maybe be like two pixels on one of our image, but the US government probably has something about, you could actually read a, a license plate from space. Uh, that's not something that's available within commercial, but I think it's available within the military. So if we could get this, uh, for the agricultural industry, I think that would increase production tenfold easily. Um, obviously, there's there's a lot of uh, privacy um, obstacles there, but I think what they have is kind of an indicator of where the commercial market will be moving and how we'll be able to increase productivity of farming um, exponentially down the road. Um, so yeah, uh, if the US government would be kind enough to let me use some of those satellites, I'd be That'd be awesome. Actually, one of the they launched one of their satellites um, uh, on Sunday from Vandenberg Air Force Base, um, which is a I think it's a, it's a, a spy satellite that'll be used for imagery. Um, so maybe we'll get a an agriculture one someday. I actually had another awesome founder on the podcast a while ago that runs a company called Nearspace Labs. Oh, I know those and guys. Yeah. Yeah, they're balloons. sending up the balloons yeah. into low Earth orbit. I wonder if that would be an interesting partnership for you. It's actually something I was actually looking at their website before I got I hopped on this. I was looking through your your other um your other uh, podcast, but yeah, it is actually something that 
we'll probably end up doing trials with eventually. So yeah, I'll, I'll let you know. I feel like there's a lot of uh, the price point and the size has gone down mm -hmm. so precipitously of getting something into low earth orbit that you yeah. can start to get really high quality imagery, which is useful across all different types of applications. Absolutely. Yeah. Even, even, even like uh, aside from farming and agriculture, uh, like tracking ships or container ships and being able to increase their operations uh, efficiency is, is I think, I think being able to create um, low cost to low earth orbit is extremely, extremely valuable to the economy. Uh, Cause you can just see how many applications it can apply across to whether it is agriculture or not. So I think that's something that's really going to accelerate the economy um, with like the likes of SpaceX or Blue Origin from, from Amazon. Uh, I think that's going to be something that's very interesting in the next uh, 10 years or so. I agree. And I think a lot of it right now is being used on the ag tech insurance side. So crop insurance using yeah. that type of imagery, which is another interesting use case in this space. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's something we're looking into too. So we're even insurance sides that we're branching into recently. How tech savvy or eager to adopt tech have you found some of the farmers that you work with right now? Oh, okay. That's, yeah, it's interesting. It's very interesting. It's either, actually it's changed a lot in the past, I'd say three years or so. Um, initially farmers weren't as eager to adopt new technology um, as like the general public uh, because a lot of farmers have been farming all their life and what works for them works for them. Um, it's kind of that, like that thing, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Um, but most recently we've started to see farmers are, it's like night and day in terms of how eager they, um, compared to, to like a few years ago that they are willing to adopt technology now. Uh, and I think a lot of that was accelerated by COVID. A lot of farms are realizing that unless they start to adopt technology on their farm, they might not exist next year or the year after. So even though farmers might not be the most tech savvy people in the world, they're starting to realize that, hey, unless I learn how to use a new piece of software that's going to help me uh, manage irrigation a bit better, then I might not be able to feed my family next year. Um, so that's, that's a big change that I've seen in the past few years that a lot more farmers are, are starting to adopt uh, newer pieces of technology. And soon enough, I, I think you're not going to be able to find a farm uh, within the U.S. at least that doesn't have some sort of technology on their farm that helps with their operations. What have you been seeing in terms of generational transfer of farms, meaning, you know, people in our general age demographic, I'm older than you, but still curious to see whether, uh, you know, what happens when it's been passed down in the family for four generations and now, you know, the millennials and Gen Zs don't want to be farmers. What are you seeing happen on that front? Yeah, we're, I, I think we're seeing in more of kind of the combination of smaller farms getting into larger farms. Um, so previously there was tons and tons of family farms, uh, but now what we're seeing is there are more co-op models um, where those small family farms are kind of joining together as, as tenant to be one large mega farm. Um, just be simplify operations and a lot of people don't want to be farmers anymore. Um, but Another thing is that the generational pastime of the farms to, to the younger generations are usually the farms that do the best, uh, the ones that are run by like 24-year-old uh, sons of an older farmer are usually the most tech-enabled and most efficient 
most productive farms that like we come across. And that's usually the farms we try to run trials on because those are the farmers that will tell us to our face that this is a terrible feature. This doesn't work well because they've seen pretty much every software piece or every hardware piece that is on the market. Um, so, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting uh, dynamic. Um, but, yeah, a lot of farmers or, or farms, sorry, are starting to kind of join up and become larger kind of clumps of, of farms within within the U.S. in particular. That's not so much the case across Europe. Um, we don't have as many co-op models, I don't think. Um, there's just more of a problem of kind of the pastime where younger people don't really want to be uh, farmers as much now. Yeah, I'm seeing there's been a lot of consolidation in a lot of these legacy industries, but it also does bode well for you in kind of the why now when the younger people who are managing some of these mega farms or co-ops, they are demanding that things are mobile friendly and tech optimized and it helps them both get a leg up, but they want a similar experience in their personal life to what they do for work. Right, exactly. Yeah, they're, they're always the, the funnest to work with. The, the older farmers have the best stories um and they are uh, like really really nice people but the younger farmers are always the the people you want for testers because they're like straight honest to your face and uh they've they've seen everything basically but yeah they're, they're more demanding in terms of um what's basically needed on the farm um so yes yeah, it, it's fun what, what what's one of the best stories you've heard from an older farmer the funny funniest experience you've had oh I'd say I'd say one thing is uh, farmers talk an awful lot. So like they talk off offline, even though pretty much every farmer uses Facebook right now. I don't know how how they manage it, but everything the spread of information happens offline quicker than online, um, which is kind of really interesting. I remember it was a few years ago we were doing a farm visit in the north of Ireland, so like the very very top of Ireland. And we were kind of doing farm visits all over. And a few days later, we were doing a farm visit in the bottom of Ireland, like a few hundred miles away. Um, and something we had told the farmer from the at the top of Ireland had somehow spread to this farmer in the bottom of Ireland that we had never spoken to before, like completely offline. Like, like these farmers didn't really use Facebook or WhatsApp or Instagram or anything like that. So yeah, everything within farming spreads very quickly, like wildfire and sort of some sort of secret underground spider web way, um, which is also really interesting in terms of figuring out distribution. Like if you build something like really good, farmers will talk about it a lot and it will spread quite quickly. Um, so I'd say we're pretty well known within Ireland right now, but we're still kind of figuring out how that underground spider web works within the US. We've just recently branched out here. Um, but yeah, that's... They're, they're very, very interesting people. Every farmer has their, their, own, their own stories. Has that been your life over the last three, four years of going farm to farm and just talking <laughs> to people on the ground? Yeah, well, yeah, I'd say it's more so my, my co-founder. He's, he's pretty, pretty good at that. He can talk to a farmer all day long. Uh, it's really funny. You just leave him there and he just talks all day, uh, <laughs> which is great because you can get so much information. And then I kind of manage more of the, uh, the tech stack side of things. Um, but yeah, it's a good, uh, it's a good uh, dynamic between us two. But yeah, visiting farms is always fun because they have all these contraptions and stories and yeah, you can spend all day at them. What does the process look like to deploy CropSafe at one of your customers? So they pretty much download our mobile app and we give them access and that's, that's all they have to do. Um, we've built our product out in a way that 
farmers don't need training to use it. That's something that always annoyed me when I tried out new software. Like I would sign up to it and they'd be like, okay, we'll contact you within the week and we'll get you set up with a pricing plan and you'd wait a week and you'd get less interest and then they'll contact you and they'll be like, okay, cool. Here's your pricing point. We're going to send another guy to train you how to use the software. That'll be in like two weeks. And that was something that always drove me insane. So I, I made sure like the key requirement of CropSafe is once they download it, they can use it. And that's, that's how our product works right now. Like if we ever have some sort of onboarding process that takes forever, um, then it's not me building the product. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's, it's pretty easy to get set up. Hopefully at least. Yeah. Makes sense. And have people been pretty receptive to a mobile app as the form factor? Yes. Yeah. Actually a mobile app works pretty well because you just carry your phone everywhere. Our alerts are done through text messages as opposed to like, um, um, connected to the internet and just get notifications because you're always about in the field and wanting to check things offline. Um, but we've also started building out a web app as well uh, to help farmers manage more of the financial aspect of things. I uh, just get, lets you go a bit more in depth. So yeah, it's a, a bit of a mix actually. What's been the biggest surprise that you've learned in this market as you've gotten deeper and deeper? Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, let me think. I would say there's a lot more hidden applications to it than like I initially thought. Initially, we just started CropSafe, like using satellite imagery to tell farmers what part of the field is healthy and not healthy. But there's always these like really small, tiny use cases that turn out to be really valuable for farms, like telling them if their cows have escaped or not um, <laughs> using satellite imagery that they use the software for that. Like we didn't design the software to be used for, but like they'll use the satellite imagery and count the cows, <laughs> which is funny. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of interest, like, like you give users your product and then you see kind of, we have a lot of analytics built into it and you kind of see where they're starting to use it that you haven't intended to. And you double down on those features. If it's something that's, um, applies across to your, your user base. So yeah, there's always these really, really kind of funny things like those cows and farmers calling us up and saying, Hey, can you create a cow counter feature uh, alert within the software? And like yeah that's that's possible we never really thought about it but yeah that we could, we could do that if you want um but yeah it's just also balancing what you should build and what you shouldn't build um like even if farmers want a cow counter is it really the best thing to spend your time on and roll out as a feature so yeah it's a lot of little tiny tiny interesting things that farmers always suggest but the main thing that they have been suggesting is that financial management thing um which is something we didn't really think about too much uh, but because we have all this data anyway, we may as well start to branch into that um, and make use of the, the data we have. Mm, it makes sense. You kind of watch and learn what your customers need and then you build for that. On the um, cow counter piece, my husband is a founder in the IoT space oh, and really? he's talked to quite a few companies that are doing mostly cow trackers or animal trackers for farms. And it's shocking how big of an issue that is. You don't think that yeah. you'd lose... Something as big as a cow, but you definitely know, can. Yeah. The bells aren't working anymore. Yeah. We, back home, we have, usually they have bells on them. Um, actually, one of the, <laughs> it was funny because I, I went to a, a high school in kind of the countryside, sort of. Um, and one of the most common reasons for people, people being late to class was the cows were crossing the road or it's a cow on the road that stopped our bus <laughs> from getting by. Um, so yeah, we got we to gotta sort that out. So maybe that's down the line. <laughs> 
<laughs> That's awesome. Well, this has been really fun. The last question I always like to ask is, has there been any piece of advice you've been given so far in your life or career that's really stuck with you and are words you live by? Oh, let me think about this for a second. There's a, there's a lot of advice that people have given me that have changed my life. I, that's kind of cliche to say, but um, I'd say, I can't remember who exactly told me this, but it's kind of a standard one, but I live by it anyway, is never put a roof on your ability um, in terms of what you want to do. Because um, I think like like growing up in a small high school in Ireland, like it's kind of a funnel system where everybody goes to high school, everybody applies for university, everybody goes to university. Uh, and you're doing this very linear kind of structure you jump from one thing to another thing and nothing and you nobody ever goes outside of that i i don't know who told me this but like or, or how i kind of like branched a bit outside of you know i never ended up going to college or university i had my offers but i ended up turning them down um and i i remember sitting in the exam hall actually i think it was my english teacher that told me this my my english teacher in high school um she always made us write these essays of where we saw each other in 10 years or 15 years down the line. I always had these really <laughs> crazy like writings I'd put together and be like, oh, I'm going to be a finder. I'm going to have a hundred employees office in San Francisco and all these like, <laughs> like things I would dream up of when I was like 13 or 14 years old. And I remember sitting in the very last exam at high school at my desk, I was finished my exam. So I was just looking up at the ceiling daydreaming. And I remember re like thinking back to that, essay I wrote like four or five years prior and realizing that when I finished this when I finished this exam and I took my university offers and went to university and did whatever I did down the line that would make that essay not possible in a way um because I took a different route and uh, it wouldn't like be possible to achieve those goals um so the next day I I booked a flight to San Francisco uh, and left Ireland but like literally the next day after I finished high school um, because if I did that that would make it possible to achieve that crazy essay piece where I wanted to have an office in San Francisco I wanted to build this billion dollar company 100 employees all these like crazy ambitious things um, so yeah I'm getting closer to that um, dream that my 13 year old self had and yeah I think it was my, my English teacher she made a lot of uh, impact on me when I was when I was younger. Well, it's pretty impressive that you can also follow that because most people at that age would be too afraid to deviate off the path. And you know, as a venture capitalist, one thing I've become very acutely aware of is when you're looking at early founders. There's one thing that makes people successful, and it's the people who go off the beaten path and who are a little bit off, you know, like doing something different. And those people tend to have some spark in them that really makes them successful. So. I think that you have that. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Well, if people want to learn more about CropSafe, where should they go? Um, go to our website, CropSafe.com. Uh, um, we're also hiring. So we're looking for, for uh, engineers and product managers and designers. Um, so uh, let us know if, uh, <laughs> if you're interested. Ag tech getting to be a hot sector. So there you go. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much, John, for joining today. Yeah, I learned a lot. Thank you. Thank you.